You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Matt and team. Uh, So glad that you're here. I want to say also welcome to worship at Bethel, the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. I'm Eric Barton, and I get to be the pastor down here. And it is my delight to be with you. Uh, It is my thrill that you are here as well. We believe that you're here not on accident, that God and his sovereignty and his grace and his goodness and his compassion and his moving towardness has divinely purposed that you would be here this morning to hear from him by his spirit, among his people, from his word. And so I just want to set your expectations. That's what we're here to do. By the way, if you are visiting with us this morning, we also want to say a special word of welcome. We would be super honored if you would look in the seat back pocket in front of you and find one of those five by seven cards, fill it out with your contact information, let us know how we can get back in touch with you. And we would love to follow up and see if we can get you connected or how we can be praying for you. We want to do anything that we can to help people get integrated into the warp and the woof of what's happening here at our church. I want to start this morning as we continue to worship by recounting a conversation I had recently with a dear sweet sister in the Lord. Now she's from another church, so I don't want you to panic and go, oh my gosh, he's talking about a conversation he had with somebody. I can never talk to my pastor because he's going to end up using me as a sermon illustration. Not true, but if I do, I'll change the name. Okay? No, I'm kidding. I would never ever do that. But I was talking with this very sweet sister in the Lord, and she said, I'm, I'm really struggling through what does it mean in the Bible when it says that we are to take up our cross and follow Jesus? And I said, well, what do you think it means? It's brilliant pastor's tick. Now, if you don't know what to say, well, what do you think it means? And she said, well, everything that I'm reading is telling me that it means I'm supposed to ratchet up my commitment to follow him. I'm supposed to really uh, do better at obeying him. And I winced and she saw it. And I said, well, how's that working out for you? She said, well, you know, I have good days and bad. I said, okay, okay. So, so what about those times when even though you are committed to doing what he wants you to do, you don't? Even though you know what you're supposed to do, what about those times when your commitment sort of flags and your obedience wanes? Then what? She said, yeah, that that happens a lot. I said, does that ever produce joy? And she sort of sagged and sensing an opening as a guy who has never been burdened with a mercy gift, I leaned in. And I said, so what you're telling me is simply trying harder to be better, to do more, is actually stealing your joy rather than producing and giving. She said, well, I guess so. I said, I don't think that's the call of the New Testament. What if there was a way to simply persistently be mindful that it is finished? And all you really have to do is persistently practice his presence to be mindful that all of the work that needs to be done has been and is finished at the cross of Christ. It's done. Wouldn't that produce joy? This is what we call in homiletics a got her. She said, oh yes, how can this be? 
To which I said, please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We started last week a new sermon series for this whole spring semester about the life of David. The life of King David, this shepherd, warrior, poet, and king. And one of the things that we started last week is this fundamental, foundational truth of how you study Old Testament characters, how you study Old Testament narratives and stories. And the most important thing to take away is when you study an Old Testament character is always, without exception, every time, make sure you apply it to Jesus first. You cannot read a story of Moses, nor Melchizedek, nor Joseph, nor Noah, and think, what does this have to do with me? <clears throat> if you do that, you have degenerated the scriptures down to nothing more than, an, than a very thick collection of Aesop's fables, which are powerless to transform and redeem. No, the Old Testament is telling us everything about Jesus. Why can I say that? Because Jesus says so. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 27, as Jesus is walking behind two grieving disciples post his crucifixion, he's also alive. He is risen, but they don't understand or appreciate this, and so Jesus walks up behind them, and he tells them in Luke 24, verse 27, let me explain to you how all of the scriptures are about me. He explained to them all of the scriptures concerning himself. Can you imagine how that conversation went? Where Jesus says, oh yeah, that story? See, you don't get it because you've applied it to yourself first. Fail. Oh, that story, you want to talk about that story? Yeah, you think that's about you. It's not, it's about me. Oh, that story? Yeah, you think that's about you too? It's not, it's about me. Which leads us then finally to our passage this morning. And I'm just going to warn you, it's a big one. And it may be the most familiar passage in the Old Testament, quite candidly. A very familiar story. It's the story of David and Goliath. And immediately when you hear that, the vast majority of us, a switch goes off and go, click, got it, heard it, know it. And you're supposed to go find five smooth stones in the river of life, and you're supposed to face your giant, you know, when your hot water heater leaks. You face that giant, and you, the Lord's going to slay that leaky thing. Well, maybe there's a whole lot more going on in that passage Chapter 17 is so jam-packed, I have had my spinal fluid totally carbonated all week long in studying this passage. And so I hope to sort of just get through this. It's a long passage, but there's so much here. I want us to just spend some time on it. So I'm going to walk through the passage. I'm just going to sort of comment as we read all of this through, and then I'll see how this applies to our Lord and Savior, and therefore what that means to us at the end. So 1 Samuel chapter 17 I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 17 and in verse 1. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Ooh. See, when you hear this, I want you to think of you being um, like a collection of 10-year-old children in ancient Israel with Samuel gathering all of you around. And Samuel, the wise old sage and prophet, is gathering all the children to tell them of the enormity of the faithfulness and the power of God Most High. And so he's going to tell this great epic saga. The Philistines, they're the bad guys, the worst of the worst. They are to be feared in all Israel. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. 
So what's going on? Saul is king in Israel. David has already been anointed king of Israel. So Saul has now been rejected. David has been anointed. And yet Saul is still on the throne. Now, Samuel's going to give us some place names because he assumes that we as a group of 10-year-old children sitting around his stool understand where all of these things are. So here's what he says. He get, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Now, we're supposed to hear that and kind of shriek. Like, no! They can't be that close. The Philistines, the bad guys, these Philistines are the warring seafaring peoples. The Israelites were not a sea people. They were agrarian. The, the Philistines actually originate from the island of Crete, and they've mastered metallurgy. They have weapons, they have armor, they have technology. It'd be like the ancient Roman Empire marching into South Sudan. Like, there's no comparison technologically, and even in a, in a matter of resources. And they have gotten as far as Azika. Azika means cultivated ground, because it is in the, the fertile heartland just to the west of Jerusalem. It's a gate city that prevents any invading army from making its way into Jerusalem. Ezekiel's founded some 3,000 years before Jesus. It's 5,000 years old to us today. And the Philistine army has come from the Mediterranean coast, and they've marched inland over 12 miles. They're very close. If they take the gate city of Ezekiel, it is a cakewalk just to go in and take Jerusalem. There will be nothing to stop them. It's sort of like if they make it past the square in front of the courthouse, we're sitting ducks. There's nothing that's going to stop them between the square and here. It's that close. This is a very scary passage. And they are gathered in this valley between two hills at Ephes Damin, which means uh, the end of bloodshed or the end of blood. Probably named because the soil in that area is uh, kind of a reddish brown color. So this is a very scary scene. David, you've just been anointed king. Congratulations. But Saul's still on the throne. And yet the enemies of God gather near. What's going to happen? Let's continue. Verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. So can, can you see this? Two hills and a valley. On one side you got the Philistines. To the north is Israel and their army. The last stand against this Gentile invasion of God's promised land. Verse 3, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, you don't have to know Hebrew to study your Bible. You don't have to know Greek to study your Bible. But every now and then, there are some helpful things to, to learn, to study, to investigate. The Hebrew here is astonishing. In the Hebrew, Goliath of Gath is a homonym. When you say it in Hebrew or in Aramaic, Goliath of Gath sounds almost exactly like Golgotha. It's fascinating. Surely there can't be a coinkydink there. Goliath of Gath, one of the five cities of the Philistines on the Mediterranean coast. Goliath the champion. Goliath whose name means the exiler. 
He who carries away. He who takes away. So, so here's the story. The Philistines are gathered. The bad guys, the army is mustered. Goliath, the exiler, steps forward. Golgotha, the place of the skull, is what his name sounds like. This is propaganda. This is intimidating. And it says that he was six cubits. Well, here's the deal. Uh, according to that translation, he would be about nine feet, nine inches tall. That dude had to have knee problems, all right? Now, there are some translations, the Septuagint, for example, and some other translations, actually say that it's four cubits in a span, which would make him six foot nine. I'm not saying that either is impossible. Of course, it's possible. But more than likely, some of the better manuscripts, we think, say that he's four cubits in a span. That's going to be about six foot nine. So imagine Shaquille O'Neal, just a little bit shorter than Shaq walking up towards you. We know anthropologically, the average size of an ancient Hebrew, an ancient Israelite, they were about 5'4 and weighed 138 pounds. So we're, we call this in sports a mismatch, all right? This is, this is Goliath as he walks up here. Verse 5, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. <laughs> This is what we call mechanized infantry. He's a tank. He's a tank. And by the way, the interesting thing here is every translation translates the word there, bronze, as bronze. But probably a better translation is copper. Now, why does that matter? There's this cool little Hebrew word, nachshon. And it's the same word as copper as it is for serpent i.e., when Moses and the children of Israel are getting bitten by serpents, the fiery ones, he makes a serpent of copper. It's nachshon. It's the same word. Serpent and copper are really sort of the same root word. And so all the commentators agree, hey, what's going on here? Samuel's telling us something. This monster who is like a, he's like an Abram's tank. His armor is copper. It's reddish, copper color, gleaming in the sun, and the way that copper mail is put together, it would have been like scales. And so what you have here is this monster of a man walking forward, looking like a gigantic serpent with his scales glintering in the sun. The serpent. By any chance, will this be a callback to a very early prophecy in Genesis chapter 3.15 that talks about the head of the serpent shall be crushed? See, we have to remember all these Old Testament stories are pointing us forward to the ultimate David. So here he is in this very descriptive armor. Samuel's not wasting words so that we geek out on how much is a shekel of copper. He's telling us something. He's enormous and he's scaly. He looks like a giant serpent. Very intimidating. Now then verse 5. Sorry, verse 6. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, again, of, of copper. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. He's a tank. He is invincible. To look at him with your eyes, you think, I lose, he wins, it's over. It's just how it goes. Now, verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. So, he taunts them. 
day after day after day, and they simply have to take it because no one is dumb enough to face this guy. I mean, again, it's like a seven-year-old boy with Play-Doh going up against a Roman centurion. It's going to end bad for the Play-Doh dude. This is, what, this is what's happening here. Verse 9, if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. This is a little bit of an ancient championship model. I'll be the champion. There's no need in everybody getting killed this day. Let's just make it easy. I'm invincible. I'll fight your best. He knows that Saul is king, tall, dark, and handsome. I kill your best. Who is your king? We win. The day's over. My army's still intact. Nobody has to even break a sweat. That's how it went back then. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11 when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They, yare. It's the most intense word in Hebrew for fear. They trembled. It's like what you would feel before the lion clamps his jaws down upon you. That fear of predation. Terror. We cannot win this because they were succumbing to the propaganda of the eye. They were looking with their eyes, not with their hearts. In all candor, Israel is essentially a faithless people at this point. Now, verse 12. David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. That's Jesse. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. Now, that's interesting. We're told earlier in chapter 16 of these three sons and their names. And the names of these three sons who went to the battle were interesting. These three dudes get named again. The other four don't. David does. But these three guys are named. There's Eliab, the firstborn. Eliab means God is my father. The next to him was Abinadab, means my divine father is noble. And the third, Shammah, heard by God. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. This is several miles one way. A couple miles there, take care of his sheep. A couple miles to go be an errand boy and bring some cheese to his brothers. And back and forth he goes. And he's starting to see some of this stuff. Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Oh, this is getting old. Why does he keep doing this? Why won't he, why won't he just attack? Why won't he just go away? 40 days they have to listen to this giant, serpent-like tank taunt them. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now, verse 19, Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Except not really. They're drawn up, scared to death. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went. And Jesse, as, as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. <laughs> 
He left the provisions and said, well, I want to go and see this. Can you imagine a young man? He hears the ruckus, people shouting back and forth. He wants to see the fight. And he leaves his stuff with the baggage handler. And you sort of get the impression that's also where King Saul is. Not where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be leading his ranks down the slope, but he's not. He's back with the baggage. This is not going well for Israel. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath. Here it is, those words put right back together again. Gatha. He came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him this time. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and Yahweh were much afraid. They all turn like this, and they run like they stole something. This is Israel's best effort. Based on what they see, they turn and run. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. His family gets to live tax-free which would be a huge blessing because God had already told Moses, when you appoint a king, he's going to tax the people deeply. He'll be given the status of son-in-law of the king, and he will be given the daughter and live tax-free. David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Ah, ah, who fights for Israel, who fights for God. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Notice where David's offense is placed. And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Isn't that just always the way it is? The thing you are most insecure about, the thing you are most, if I can poke a little bit here, ashamed of in your own life, is usually the thing you will rip your kids the most severely for. Or maybe that's just me. The thing that your bride most frustrates you over is the thing that you will usually tear her over the most, and vice versa. There's something about our flesh that just lashes out because we can't beat our own. And he says to his little brother, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Dude, that's cold. Come on, big bro. Why you got to hate me like that? What have you done to, to come and to see the grown-ups? Why don't you go back to your few little bit of sheep? Oh, really, Captain Awesome? Because you haven't run away every day for 40 days, morning and evening. And yet he's lashing out calling David a poser. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? It's like the four billionth time a little brother has said that, incidentally. Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. So David keeps going, hey, really, what's going to happen? So for real, no, yeah, really, this is, is this real? Like, I'm not just making this up, really. All, all somebody's got to do is kill that big, ugly snake, and like, for real, I know, seriously, if someone kills the big, ugly snake, what happens? No, 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 really. If someone kills the big snake thing, what happens? This is awesome. It's interesting. David's not looking with his eyes. He's looking with his heart, which incidentally is the way God describes himself, not by sight. 
In verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. <laughs> Remember, the king is supposed to represent God to the people. Saul's back with the baggage, hiding out amongst the satchels. And this young shepherd boy comes up and goes, hey, 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 no fear. No fear. I will be the one who represents God to the people. Now, I don't know for sure if Saul knows that David's been anointed king. My sense is not, or he would not have permitted this. But Saul says to David, verse 33, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to sh keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. What? Who says this? I stomped a horny toad once and felt bad for six weeks. Who, who's got the manpower as a young shepherd in Israel to grab a lion by the goatee and just jack him till he's dead? This kid's awesome. This kid's all about that gristle. And he's like, listen, you don't need to be afraid. But notice what he says. When something would attack my sheep, God, my father, would deliver that beast into my hand. Oh, this is the kind of king I want, y'all. Someone who's been there, who's done that, who knows God so well that he knows what God loves. He knows what God hates. And that is what determines and dictates and drives his demeanor and his actions. Are you following me? supposed to be catching, hey, this David, he doesn't look like what I want, but he certainly seems like it. Hmm. Well, David's already faced one test. His brothers were ridiculing him and sort of discouraging him and downplaying him. Now he's going to face test number two. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Is he arrogant? No. He just knows the will of his father. How? practicing his presence. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Test number two comes right here. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. <laughs> See, Saul wanted a champion who would fight with strength in his own power. David said, I can't do that. I'm a shepherd. I'm not a warrior. Saul had no idea how to fight with faith because he had none. And there's another other little thing that's going on here. Saul is a manipulator. He's insecure and he's devious. He's putting his armor on David so that from a distance, you can't really tell who's going out to fight. That's Saul's armor. That's the king of Israel. Yes, he's going out. And maybe, just maybe, this kid pulls it off. And it looks like the king of Israel has defeated the Philistines. Saul is shrewd. He's manipulative. But he puts it on David and David's like, clank, clank. This isn't going to work. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go. He couldn't even make it out of the luggage tent, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. I have no faith in these things. Oh, oh I know they're strong, and they're, they're wealthy, and they're, they're glimmering, but I have no experience with them. I cannot go to war with that which I do not know. Interesting. Verse 40. And he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook of Elah and put them in his shepherd's pouch. Why five stones? I don't know. It doesn't matter. We can try to make all sorts of sermon outlines and illustrate. Oh, F is for 
fun. A is for accurate. And I, no, I have no idea. There's, there's, there's five. And it doesn't spell faith. And I don't know why he chose five. Now, these stones are about the size of a baseball, incidentally. So it's not just that he scoops up five. They're good-sized chosen stones that this dude knows how to throw. Five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now, that's interesting. David is from the tribe of Judah. The best slingers in all Israel were Benjamites. They were the ones who, in the Benjamite War, almost wiped out the rest of Israel because they were so good with artillery, with slings. You know who's the Benjamite in charge right now? Saul. Saul's a tall, dark, and handsome Benjamite, supposed to be awesome with a sling, and yet homie is back there with the footlockers. This kid from Judah takes his sling. That's interesting. Took his staff in his hand, verse 4. He chose five smooth stones, put them in his pouch. Sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward, and he came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth. This is the verse I think of every time I go to the mall. I'm like, ugh, these teenagers. I disdain them because they are youths. Smells like teen spirit in this place. No, it's not what this verse means. The Philistine, Goliath, is offended that they would send a boy to do a man's work. How dare they? Ruddy and handsome in appearance. Second time, Samuel tells us that he was reddish in the red dirt area, fighting a gleaming copper-like serpent. That's interesting and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now that should have been a clue to the Philistine that this was not going to go well. <laughs> you see, back in 1 Samuel chapter 5, you may know this story. The Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant from Israel. And what do they do with the aforementioned ark? Well, they put it in their temple of their god called Dagon. They come back the next morning, whoopsie, Dagon is face down with his head gone. That's a clue. What might possibly happen when the Philistine faces the God of Israel in person? But he curses David by his gods. Verse 44, the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Why? Because Goliath's courage comes from within. He's looking at the champion inside himself. I have strength. I have all the externals. I am the winner. I'm the champion. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Now, what gives me goosebumps is that that expression, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, is how the Gospel of Luke describes Jesus. Come on, people, that's good. David's courage comes from without, not from within. It is an alien investiture of weight and meaning and power. It comes from without, not from within. Sorry, every contemporary talk show host ever. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. The Lord will do this, and I will strike you down. Do you see? I love the, the, the tension here and the complexity. God's going to do it, and it'll be my hand that swings. Well, is it God's action or is it my action? Nuh-huh. It's both. God does it, 
and David's fist is on the weapon. It's both and. It doesn't have to be either or. In fact, it never is. It's always a both and. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Despite the faithlessness of my people, there is one who will fight for the many who knows that there is a God. Verse 47, And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. The battle is the Lord's. Now, right there in the midst of this text, as David speaks, that's our big idea for the morning. The battle is the Lord's. Now, not just when your toaster stops working, not just when someone cuts you off in traffic. I'm talking about the battle is the Lord's. So what I want us to all walk out of here with, this is what David is telling us. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. To which the Philistine must be thinking, are you kidding me? I'm going to do that, and this kid's going to just turn and run. But David doesn't. He picks up speed as he runs down the slope towards the Philistine. The Philistine's like, oh, this is about to be awesome. I'm about to hit this kid so hard, half of him's going to go over that side of the ballpark. The other half of him's going to go over that side of the ballpark. I'm about to swing away here. It's going to be awesome. As they're running toward one another, David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone. This would be about the size of a baseball, actually. And he slung it. And he struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell uh, on his face to the ground, resembling Dagon on his face on the ground before the ark of God. And here the champion of Philistines is on his face before the champion of God. He falls straight down. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. That's an important little description there. Why? Why are we told that? David goes and stands over the Philistine. He goes all Captain Morgan on this Philistine. Puts his foot right up on him, right? He stood over him. Took a sword and he drew it and out of its sheath and he killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. They were Yare. All of their confidence imploded. Look who was deeply entrenched in their own strength. Look who is now turned on their heel and run the other direction. Verse 52. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath. Oh, all the way back to Goliath's hometown. And the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron, all the way to the Mediterranean coast. They are pushed back because of the actions of this one. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. Now, this is interesting. Verse 54. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. What in the world does Samuel tell us this for? Saul's not in Jerusalem. David's never been to Jerusalem. But for some reason, he takes the crushed head of this serpent to Jerusalem. I'm convinced that as a callback, again, to Genesis 3.15, there will be one who will have his heel bruised, but he will crush the head of the serpent. And David takes the head of this giant 
all the way to Jerusalem. I think setting the stage for an ultimate sacrifice and an ultimate crushing of the serpent's head. Verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know, which is weird because he's already had a conversation with Jesse about his son, but Saul's going cocoa by this time, all right? And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. I am the one who comes from Bethlehem. So it's a long saga in our Old Testament. What are we to take away from all of that? How can we apply this, again, not immediately to our own lives, but what are we to take away? How does this, uh, how does this apply to Jesus? But, but listen, I know this is a big, familiar, famous story, and we kind of can't help but try to read ourselves into the story. So, so I'm going to concede here. I'm going to help us out. If you really have to put yourself in the story, here's where you put yourself. Number one, we are his brothers. We are his brothers. This is application point number one. We are his brothers. Listen to the names of these dudes. His actual brothers. Eliab, God is my father. Abinadab, my divine father is noble. Shammah, heard by God. All of those things are true of me, incidentally. God is my father. My divine father is noble. I am heard by God. That's awesome. And yet, I so frequently find myself doubting the strength of my king, doubting his interest, questioning his motive, and then being so self-absorbed that when I find myself overwhelmed by my circumstances and my surroundings, I pout and get discouraged. You want to put yourself in 1 Samuel 17 and David and Goliath? Fine, we are his brothers. That's the point of the narrative. We stand there and we tremble and we run. Now, the one thing that the Israelites do teach us is this is what they got right. At least they looked at their situation and said, I can't win this one. The enemy's too strong. He will overpower me. But did you know that the New Testament comes along and says, here's the gospel. Your enemy is too strong. He will overpower you. And really receiving, really hearing the gospel is believing that to the extent that you do not try to fight. Your enemy is your own sin, your impending death, your eternal separation from God. And when you look at that serpent, you go, I can't beat that. The gospel says, that's right, that's right. But you don't have to. Which leads us to the second point of application. Jesus is a better David. As we discussed all through our Advent series, the Gospel of Matthew is trying to tell us that Jesus is the rightful heir to the line of David. He's the king of kings. He's more David than David. He's a better David. He's born in Bethlehem, as the heir of David's throne should be. He is the fulfiller of the promises that God made to David. Now, under this sort of main point that Jesus is a better David, I have three quick sub-points. I'm just going to walk through these very quickly. Number one, God fulfills his promises by becoming that which he promised. Isn't that so cool? I would never come up with this, but I guess that's what it means to be God. God says, I will provide someone who will sit on your throne forever. And you know what? I'll just be the personification of that promise. I will be the presence. 
God says, I will fulfill my promise by becoming that which I promised. I don't know how you can fully appreciate or even begin to fully appreciate the glory, the grandeur, the grace of God apart from a Trinitarian understanding of God. God, eternally existing, there is one God in three persons. But God the Father sent the Son. I don't understand how you can understand pretty much the vast majority of Scripture without a Trinitarian understanding. God fulfills his promises by becoming that which he promised. Subpoint so two, the one won the victory for the many because the many could never win. If the many, all of the muster of Israel approaches the Philistines, they die, they lose. Or if any other one approaches the Philistines, they die in a pile of smear. But this one won the victory for the many. As one artist put it, he kicked against the darkness until the darkness bled daylight. Because I could never do that. The one won the victory for the many because the many could never win. Subpoint three, the shepherd of souls is a warrior king. Our king is accustomed to putting his life in between the enemy and the life of his sheep. He's also so close to the Father that Jesus is the perfect walking around fulfillment of the will and the character of God. David knew what God wanted, but infinitely more so Jesus does. He perfectly represents God to his people. You want to know what God is like, Jesus says in the Gospel of John? <laughs> Look at here. Look at me. You've seen me. You've seen him. He is the one who has gone before and led with honor and valor, and he still does. The battle is the Lord's. So, we are his brothers. Jesus is a better David. But you know what's even crazy about this story? Jesus became a worse Goliath. I don't know what you think about all that Goliath represents, but Jesus became a worse Goliath. In Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, we're told that the penalty for blasphemy is death by stoning. Interesting how Goliath dies. A little bit later on after Leviticus, we get to the book of Joshua chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, and we find Israel fighting a battle against some people called the Amorites. You'll never guess where. At Azekah, the same exact place where David kills Goliath. And in Azekah, God kills the Amorites. You'll never guess how. By stoning them. God rains down stones upon the Amorites. And the text is clear to say, more people died by the hand of God raining down stones than by the hand of the sword of the Israelites. Because the penalty for blasphemy is stoning. Goliath cursed David by his gods. That is blasphemy speaking ill against the God of creation, and you must die by stoning. And in the Old Testament, the entire community has to be a part of that stoning. Jesus became the curse. He became all of my error, sin, deviance, and depravity, all of my natural proclivity to blaspheme the God that loves me and made me. Jesus became that. Don't believe me? That's the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, in one sense, is the 
shepherd king. But God, in one sense, in Christ becomes Goliath, a worse curse for my behalf. Just to make sure we really get it, Paul carries that one step further in Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us, a blasphemer. This is the extent and the depth that Jesus goes to for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Philistines. You want to put yourself in the story? You're the Philistine. I'm the Philistine. And the God of Israel becomes the curse that I deserve. You really want to be in the story? Good. You're the Philistine. You're the Gentile that Jesus loves you so much. He loves you so much. I got wrecked this weekend. We uh, made a tactical error as a family, and we decided to watch a vacation video of ours from 2009, and my boys were about this high. Oh, my gosh. And I see them on screen, and they start talking those little tiny voices. I'm a heart patient, y'all. I lost it. I wept like I had, like, iron shavings in my eye, and it struck me. What if I believed that God loves me like I love those two kids? I mean, really functionally, practically, persistently, daily believed it, that he would become Goliath so that this Philistine could be called the son of God most high. It's an astonishing story. Jesus became all of the ugliness of man so that we could enjoy all of the glory of God. That's how committed Jesus is. It's not about me being more committed and taking up my cross and trying harder to do more. That is a failure waiting to happen. I could never have been committed enough or try hard enough because Jesus said it is finished. Let me just say this. I know you got giants in your life. I don't care. I mean, I do care because I'm a pastor. I'm paid to care, but listen. The battle is the Lord's. There is joy available daily simply by being mindful. Oh, wait. I know how this story ends. I know how this story ends, and so there is joy. There is hope. I simply have to preach a sermon to my soul. Does that mean I'm supposed to obey? Yeah, of course that means you're supposed to obey, but not for the sake of gaining his favor. You have it. You have it. So if you're here this morning, and you're still trying to face down the giants of life. You got a mortgage, and you're trying to pay off the SUV, and you're trying to fend off cancer, and you're trying to fend off that relational snafu, and all these things, and you're looking for five smooth stones in the brook. Stop it! It's finished. The one won the victory for the many. And every time you and I try to kick into the darkness in our own strength, we just bleed more darkness. But there's one who kicks the darkness, and daylight bleeds. I invite you to believe. It's impossible, actually, but it's the easiest thing in the universe. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That he is who he said he was. He did what he said he would do. And he is the champion. He is the king who cares, the champion that died, and he is the big brother who never mocks. He is proud. He's proud. I invite you to believe. For the rest of us, you have been a Christian since right after the battle of David and Goliath. Good for you. Congrats. And yet you've perhaps slipped back into a rut of trying, of taking up your cross and being committed to try harder and obey more. Oh, my God. Please, would you, by your spirit, move in our people and give us joy that the victory is won. Would you remind us the battle is the Lord's? You ain't got to fight. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. Thank you for the gospel. God, I pray if there's someone here this morning that does not know you, you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. They would step out of darkness and into light. And for the rest of us, Father, would you remind us that the battle is the Lord's and to live like it were true. I pray all these things, Father, the only way I can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for being here. I'm going to ask you to stand for a word of benediction. Somebody went long, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So I'm going to benedict real quick, and then uh, we'll be done. But I, I just, I have to give this benediction from the little book of Jude. Little book of Jude, verses 24 and 25. It goes like this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you, this is good news, blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.